The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from Golf Breeze Recovery. Our non-12-step program is changing the future of addiction recovery with our waterfront holistic drug treatment facility. You are not broken. Visit us at golfbreezerecovery.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Elizabeth Gilbert, an author and journalist, perhaps best known for her 2006 memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. The book sold over 10 million copies. Yes, I'm jealous. Was made into a film starring Julia Roberts. A sequel to the book called Committed came out in 2010, and her latest novel, The Signature of All Things, was published in 2013. Her newest book and the topic of this podcast is Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. A review of Big Magic appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, and a feature interview with Elizabeth Gilbert will appear in the November-December issue as well. So, Liz Gilbert, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. It's great to be here. Are you jealous because you wanted Julia Roberts to play you in a movie? <laughs> I just I'm, have to ask. I'm jealous because my my best-selling book, and I have 30 of them, 30 books, my best-selling one has only sold 40,000 copies. 10 million copies just seems unbelievable. And yeah, Julia it's Roberts. Unbelievable to me, too. Yeah, it's just uh, having a movie would be great, I think. <laughs> but uh, we're going to have to put that aside. And, and you know, we're going to focus on big magic and your understanding of creativity. But I think... It'll be of interest to everybody, and certainly to me, if we back up a little bit, and if you can share with us about your spiritual life since writing Eat, Pray, Love. I'd love to know what drew you to Siddha Yoga, Guru Mai, and what your relationship is with them now. Well, my relationship with them now is one of great gratitude, but I think it would be disingenuous to say that I was as devout a follower as I had been, or that I am as devout a follower as many people still are. You know, it's always been hard for me to myself for a long time with one particular spiritual path. I'm trying to figure out how to say this carefully. In that way, I'm sort of not a joiner. And I think that the exception was that very dark period in my life where I really felt like I needed the structure of some sort of rigorous spiritual practice. And what Siddha Yoga had to offer was absolutely beautiful and enduring. What I took away from there is something that I keep, but I feel like I keep it as a civilian. And I draw on those lessons. And there's so much about Hindu Shaivism that I got really excited by. I, I still love and adore the idea of the splendor of recognition, the idea that God hides God within all of us as a trick 
to play on us and a way to delight God. You know, that it's sort of a game that the divine plays to hide sparks of the divine within humans and then stand back and see if we can uncover them. And those moments where we do uncover our own divinity is, you know, what they refer to as the splendor of recognition. And you're in this joyous communion where you're like, oh, I forgot I'm God too. (laughs) Um, You know, that to me is still like the most exciting spiritual idea I've ever heard. But no, I don't, I don't regularly go to satsang anymore, but you know, I, I have nothing but warm feelings and, and joy and gratitude for the, the years that I got to spend in that practice. When I had a synagogue in South Florida, I was very close with the city yoga people in Miami. The Swami would come to services at my synagogue and I would go to meditation sessions at the ashram. Then I continued to chant the Om Namah Shivaya. I find that a very powerful tool. Even if I'm not actually a follower or a member of city yoga, I, I still yeah. find the chant very powerfully centering. It's just an amazing chant. I know this upsets people who have any sort of firm fundamental beliefs about anything around spirituality at all. But, you know, I, I feel like we're free to borrow things, you know, and I don't identify, you know, I grew up in a in a Christian culture, not a very heavily Christian household, but I went to a Christian church as a child and I get very inspired by the compassionate teachings of Christ at the same time as not identifying myself as a practicing Christian in the same way that I get very excited by that very chant that you mentioned. And for me, particularly the one I go back to is, is Hamsa or soham, as it's sometimes said, the, you know, the simplest thing that says, I am that, I am that, I am the divine too, I am part of it. I yeah. think that teaching that, you know, the way Jesus puts it in John, you know, I and the Father are one, the Jewish, a Jewish way of saying it is, um, all, alles is Gott, is the Yiddish, everything is God. Oh, yeah. You know, it's the same idea, and I think every if you go deep enough into any religious tradition, you're going to find that mystical insight, which the organizers of the religion, the people who politicize it and actually make a you know a living off of it, they don't want that message out there. It's not no, they're something they're not into that, it. They're never into it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, you're going to find that in Rumi and Hafiz when you're looking right. at mom. You know, you're going to find that all over the place where somebody says, actually, you know what? I don't need it. The dogma and I don't need the scripture. What I just need is this moment of communion with no translator between me and my source. You know, that's the kind of stuff that's always going to excite me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it actually, it's pretty fundamental to Big Magic, your new book, because there's a little line in there that I wrote down. He said, which is really just a secular way of, of talking about the, the Shiva teaching you. You write in the book, the universe, rather than Shiva, you say, the universe buries strange jewels deep within us all and then stands back to see if we can find them. I don't know if you remember that you're borrowing that from. That's like my bran muffin frosted to look like a cupcake. (laughs) You know, that's my way to sneak a spiritual idea into a secular book. But certainly nothing is more exciting to me than this sort of great scavenger hunt of our lives that says, you know, is this only what it looks like or might there be something more? And I think a curiosity-driven life is any life that looks into that question, you know, are things more than what they seem? And if so, what's in it for me and how can I express this and what Am, am I part of this or am I just a consumer? Am I a creator or am I a consumer? And and part of, you know, uncovering your own creativity is looking for those hidden jewels and seeing whether you can uncover them in yourself, which takes a lot of courage and a lot of discipline. But my goodness, it makes for a more interesting life. And would you still say that the greatest jewel of all of them is this notion of soham or tatvam asi, you know, that I and the universe are in fact one? I 
can't think of a more exciting idea than that because it's literally the most expansive thought that you can have about yourself. You can't get any broader a thought than that or any bigger or more exciting a thought than that. And, you know, one thing that, that where I think that creativity and spirituality intersect, um, I recently had a conversation with my friend, the author and pastor Rob Bell, who is coming out of the Christian tradition, but very much in line with the way that you and I have just been talking. And I said to him, let's talk about the word creation and the word creativity. And can you riff on that for me? And he had this great thing where he said, you know, there's two views of creation. And one of the views is very rigid. And it says that the world was created in seven days and then it was over. <laughs> it's a static state universe and human beings are just walking around through this thing that's that happened a long time ago that's just, we're stuck on this pile of debris spinning through earth at 67,000 miles an hour. And, and the story's kind of finished, you know? Um, and the other sort of more mystical view of the universe is of course that creation is happening. It is unfolding. It is occurring now. And that is very much in line with what physics teaches us and what looking at the natural world teaches us, which is that this thing is changing. You know, this thing is being made while we're watching it. This earth is being formed while we're looking at it. And the great question is, do you want to be a co-creator of the universe or do you just want to be a passive witness to it? And for me, the much more exciting thing is, well, I want to make things too, even as things are being made around me so that I dance that dance as well. And that I am also not just a sort of a victim of creation or a character in the creation story, but I'm a co-creator that God's looking for collaborators. And by making art or, or making anything out of your life, you're collaborating with the story of an unfolding universe. That to me is exciting. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that the notion that we are bystanders or cosmic debris, actually, I don't have a problem being cosmic debris. I mean, look what that debris is, is manifesting. Right. <laughs> universe. That, that's pretty cool. But I, I think you're right that people have a choice well, I'm not sure about that, but we, we can talk about it. But the greatest thing is to awaken to the fact that you are a way that the universe knows itself. I always think of human beings on this planet as the way that nature gets to look at herself and say, wow. Look you know, what that I that's, am. <laughs> yeah, look at this. This is amazing. As you're saying that, I just wrote down what you said because I love it so much. You are a way that the universe knows itself. Yeah. And and to me, you know, the essence of creativity is playing around with that idea. The theologians say ex nihilo, out of nothing something. That's what creation was, right? It's basically God took nothing and made something out of it. And artists do the same. You know, the whole story and the whole history of human creativity is somebody taking nothing and making something and doing it for pretty irrational reasons. You know, I think that one of the reasons we have to suspend our rational thought a little bit when we engage with creativity is that by its very nature, it is a totally irrational activity. What you're doing is you're taking the most precious resource that you have, which is your your life, your time, your energy, your short mortal hours that you're here, and you're saying, I'm going to dedicate this to making something that nobody needs <laughs> and that nobody has asked for and that there's no shortage of. And that's how I'm going to spend my time? What? Why? And if you look too rationally at the question why, it's a very hard question to answer. Does the world need another novel? Does the world need another watercolor? Does the world need more poetry? Not really. You know, um, the world needs a lot of stuff, it needs more food, more compassion, less wars. I don't know if it needs another poem, but yet we can't seem to stop making them because part of us wants to engage with creativity at that level. And and so that's the fun part. <laughs> and I can't think of a better way to spend my life than making things that are objectively useless. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me just add to the notion of this creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. From the Jewish Kabbalistic point of view, nothing on the iron is one of the names of God. 
you know, when we say creation out of nothing, it's it's actually creation out of the divine, which cannot be reduced to a thing. And so it's, you know, no thing in that sense. But it isn't. Uh, but it's no thing turning itself into something, which yes, is right. an interesting way to spend eternity. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, the, the universe, the divine is, is this, you know, dance of yin and yang. It's just, you know, something, nothing on, off, over and over and over again. And tapping into that seems to me, after reading Big Magic, I get a, I get the sense that tapping into that is really what creativity is for you. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. Because I think part of the reason that there's so much anguish, torment, and suffering around creativity is that it's very difficult to decide to take your precious energies and make something out of nothing without entering into an existential crisis. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's really essentially what's happening when the artist has a meltdown or when the novelist becomes blocked. Because the, the central question that you're asking is, what is the purpose of all this? What am I doing this for? Nobody's knocking on my door and saying, like, you know, we need another, the world is desperate for another crime novel. You know, like it's just, why am I trying? Why am I trying to do this? So you have to confront that emptiness in a way and that sort of absence of meaning. And for me, the best way to confront that is to apply magic to it, to apply mystery to it, to apply mysticism to it, to decide that, no, I'm actually not alone in this room struggling through a novel. What I'm doing is I'm engaging with inspiration. And inspiration, which is this mystical force that surrounds the universe, has sent an idea to me because it thinks that I can do it. And it wants to play with me. It wants to dance with me. And this idea wants to be made just as much as I want to make it. If there's one sort of central idea in Big Magic, it's that the work wants to be made and it wants to be made through you. That's what it feels like when an idea comes to you, right? It's like a tap on the shoulder that says, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this thing with me? And I think the most interesting way to spend your life is to just constantly say yes and to not inquire too much about why? <laughs> or um, what's the outcome going to be? How many units are going to sell? What if nobody likes it? That stuff can all come later. But in that moment, when the idea taps you on the shoulder and asks you to dance, such a more interesting way to live to just keep saying yes. That leads me to another aspect of this, which is a little difficult maybe to wrestle with. I wonder if, if what you're saying, and I happen to agree, I mean, my own experience is that when the universe taps me on the shoulder with an idea, I couldn't say no. It's, it's so powerful that if I don't do it, I feel I feel like I'm going to die if I'm, I'm right. that's obviously uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Yeah, but, but some part but, of you, I understand that feeling, yeah. So my question is, sometimes when I, when I read books like yours and when we have these kinds of conversations, I w wonder if this is a book for people of privilege. Do you think right. everybody has this happen to them or are some people really socioeconomically strapped and they're, and they're dealing with things that don't lend themselves to this kind of creative flight or Am I imagining creativity too narrowly? No, I'm, look, I think that if we're lucky enough to be privileged people, then we have to examine our privilege. You know, that's the tax that you pay on your privilege, <laughs> is that you should not get too relaxed about it. And um, and you should make sure that you're aware that you're in a very special strata. You know, certainly I would run out of fingers and toes before I could stop counting the blessings that I've had that have made me a very privileged person, which doesn't mean I was raised on a yacht. <laughs> you know, it just means that I was raised by parents who had enough resources to feed me. Let's start there. And then to feed my mind and take me to a library. And uh, I lived in a house that was not riven by conflict and alcoholism and rage. I was able as a woman to go and get an education, which puts me in, a, in an entirely small bracket for the history of women's lives. I live in a country where I have a relatively large amount of free expression. Again, that puts me in a very small bracket. So all of these things add up and I'm very aware of that. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, 
a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Um, oh, and then by the way, you know, on my fourth book, I wrote a book that sold 10 million copies. So now, now I am wealthy. So the privileges have just kept mounting in my life. That said, I was drawn to do this work long before there was any reward in it for me. I was drawn to do this work for years before anybody ever liked what I was doing or paid me for what I was doing. And I consistently did that work sort of in a vacuum just because I felt like these ideas were tapping me on the shoulder and I wanted to dance with them. And I also have seen that the history of world creativity suggests that some of the most beautiful and dynamic and interesting creative projects on earth were made by people who were very strapped. You know, the history of of creativity, if you look at world history, is certainly not the history of just, you know, rich people dallying around. It's, It's people decorating, embellishing, engineering, altering their world. And that's something that I think is being done constantly. Um, across all sorts of economic strata and across all places. And I have to believe that inspiration is available to everybody or else the world is even more unfair than we already know that it is. And if we're going to take a worldview that says, I'm sorry, you have to be white, educated, and privileged in order to engage with inspiration, then that itself becomes, I think, a very arrogant belief. Because I think history has shown us that that's not in fact true. And and actually, here's a, a really great example of it. If that <laughs> equation were totally true, then the most creative people in our culture would be the mega rich and the children. So I want to pick up on this idea that we don't want the universe to appear more unfair than it already is. (laughs) So let's talk about the unfair universe. Isn't that the biggest, most difficult question that there is? You know, why is there injustice? Why do things happen that seem and appear to be unfair? Um, Why do good people suffer, right? Isn't that the... You know, yeah, the, the, the right. fundamental, most angst, angst-inducing spiritual question that there is. And the answer um, is? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And I would say anybody who ever offers you a pat or simple reductive answer to that, be very suspicious. <laughs> because oftentimes the more simple the answer to that is sometimes the more cruel. And, you know, I think maybe the biggest answer and the most honest answer that we can give is, I wish it wasn't that way. I don't know what it is. I can draw on different theologies to speculate, but but you never want to do that in a way that reduces people's suffering. Um, I don't remember which French philosopher it was who said it's so easy to be philosophical about other people's suffering. <laughs> you know, um, you know, you just have to be very careful not to get callous or careless. I agree. I think a lot of times when people try to explain the unfairness of things, the injustice of the universe, they end up really trying to defend their own theology yeah. or their own privilege. That person suffers because that person has some karmic debt to pay off or that person thought improperly and isn't using the the secret to their advantage and that kind of thing. Yeah, I I think notions of fairness and justice, those are human constructs that really the universe has no concept of. I, I think it's it's absurd to ask, why is the universe unfair? Whereas it's very important to ask, why are people unfair to one another? Yes. Why do we create unfair systems? Yes, that is where the attention should go, because that's the one part of it that we might be able to actually alter do in small ways about. over the course of history. I mean, certainly Einstein said, you know, I don't think, <laughs> I think his line, I don't want to misquote Einstein, but how I remember, and I'll paraphrase, it was something along the lines of compassion doesn't really matter to the universe, but it really matters here on earth to human life. So let's get busy practicing it. <laughs> Which maybe leads us back to creativity. You have yeah. this this wonderful line in Big Magic where you say, creativity is a path for the brave, yes, but it is not a path for the fearless. 
Yeah. And it's important to recognize the distinction. Parse that for us. How do sure. you recognize the distinction? Fearlessness means not even feeling fear, not even really knowing what it is. And brave means feeling fear and then doing a thing despite the fear. And I'm not a big fan of fearlessness and I would never espouse it. I think the only truly fearless people that I've ever met in my entire life were psychopaths. <laughs> you know, they were really, there's something very, very wrong with that person. There was something deeply missing from them. And they were people who brought danger upon themselves and brought danger to others often. And toddlers, toddlers and psychopaths, but toddlers are tend to be sort of miniature psychopaths, I think. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's not something to aspire to. So I always object to, there's a sort of a language that people take with fear that I that tends to be very aggressive, that is a way to sort of deal with their fear where they're like, punch fear in the face, you know, kick fear in the ass, right. eradicate fear, no fear. And the more I hear language like that, the more scared that person sounds to me. <laughs> My experience of everything that I've ever encountered in the universe is that the harder you fight something, the harder it fights you back. Anytime I have ever fought anything it's hurt. The thing has responded by by fighting in return. So I'm not in a war against fear because I don't see where wars against anything have ever helped anybody really. You know, what I'm in is an attempt to create a relationship with my fear that is the friendliest, most possible relationship, the most respectful, friendliest, and most generous possible relationship with fear. And that means that I'm in a constant conversation with fear. And I treat my fear like it's a sort of a haunting inhabitant that lives within me. And I talk to it all the time. And I always begin by thanking it for the times that it has saved my life. You know, fundamentally, we should all just take a moment and be grateful for our fear because I'm sure we can all point to moments that our fear saved us. Like, get out of the water. The waves are too big. Get out. Don't get in the car with that guy. Don't walk down that street. Fear serves a function in our lives that is incredibly valuable. Fear is a very ancient instinct, and I don't think it's very nuanced. It's kind of like a toggle switch. So when it goes on, it doesn't really understand the nuances of circumstances. And so I spend a lot of time trying to talk to it and explain, look, I understand that you're fired up right now and you're afraid for me, but all I'm trying to do is write a poem. No one's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because when you enter into anything that has an uncertain outcome, your fear assumes that that outcome is going to end in your death, right? And which is why it's so scary to make art, because art asks you to walk into realms of uncertain outcome. And so I spend a lot of time just saying to fear, look, I know you're scared, and I appreciate that you exist in me, and thank you for everything you bring me, but your services are really not needed right now, because all I'm trying to do is write an essay. <laughs> you know? this, kind of, this kind of negotiation with the various personalities that we carry in our head. I mean, it sounds very much like psychosynthesis. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but this uh, Robert Asagioli, who created psychosynthesis, says that we have all these different voices in our heads and fighting them is a mistake, but calling a board meeting and having, a, you know, say, here's what I'm trying to do. Right. Yes, be afraid, but don't interrupt. I'm still going to go through this. Tell me if I'm going too far. That's fine, fear, but don't stop me from trying. You negotiate with these characters. I love so, it. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that was a thing, but I do it all the time. And I, yeah. oh, it's and a I thing. do it, yeah. you know, I speak to my creativity because um, creativity is wonderful, but I think of her as like my very highly excitable kid sister who has no sense of things like, um, you know, somebody's got to pay the, the gas bill around here and people have to eat. Like, it, you know, creativity doesn't even think about stuff like that. So creativity, the opposite spectrum of fear is constantly asking me um, to risk everything. And so I, I feel like I'm always the, the sort of most mature, thoughtful, well-rested version of myself as the person who can say to kid sister curiosity and grandfather fear, thank you both for your contributions. I'm going to weigh out your ideas here and then I'm going to chart a course for myself. It is both something that will take me in a curious direction and not destroy my life. You know, Without um, knowing it, you reinvented psychosynthesis. <laughs> 
<laughs> Congratulations. It does lead into another part of the book that I wanted to get to before we run out of time completely. That is this notion that creativity is a force of enchantment. You say something like, our planet is inhabited not only by plants and animals and people, but by ideas, which you describe as disembodied energetic life forms uh -huh. that, that are separate from us, but interact with us. And you say that they have no bodies, but they have consciousness and will. So tell me about that. I mean, how literally am I supposed to take that? You can take that however you <laughs> want to take it. You know, that's my own magical okay, yeah. thinking. And I make a pretty strong disclaimer at the beginning of the book. Like, this is a book where at some point I am going to be talking about just completely irrational magical thinking. So hop off at any rate. Like, if this is a problem for you, like, I'm going, hog, I'm going full Hogwarts on this. You know, just nobody has to come along with it. And it's an idea, I think, that would only be jarring to people who are totally rational thinkers. And um, to those people, all I can do is offer my warm indulgences. Because <laughs> I think that must be a very kind of limited way to go through life. The reason I describe it that way is because that's what it feels like. My lived experience, my really empirical experience with interacting with creativity and inspiration in the world of ideas is that that's what it feels like. And my observation is that that's what it feels like for everybody. And that's what it's always felt like for people. And people have always spoken of inspiration as something that seems to come from the without and into the within, that you were visited by an idea. And even very rational people, when they speak of inspirational moments in their lives, will use language and say things like, this idea came to me. Okay, from where? <laughs> Even you felt that, that, that there was something that wasn't in you and then it was in you and something put it there. What was that thing? You know, I love the playfulness and the sort of engagement of thinking of it that way because I just like it better than any of the other answers that anybody can ever give me about where inspiration comes from. You know, in preparation for this book, I had gathered all these books about the neuropsychology of inspiration and the, the sort of neurobiology of creativity. And, you know, part of me thought that, gosh, I have to do a lot of research on where creativity comes from. But in the end, I looked at that shelf of books and and I thought, if I have to read one of those books, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care about what cortex in the brain it lives in. or I don't want to reduce it to that. I want to continue to play with it the way human beings have played with it forever, as a dance between a human being's labor and the mystery of inspiration. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Max Weber. Oh, long decades ago, he wrote The uh -huh. Protestant Ethic and the yes, Spirit of, of Capitalism. Uh -huh. And he talks about the disenchantment world. Quote from him, he says, The fate of our times is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization, and above all, by the disenchantment of the world. And I really read Big Magic as a way of re-enchantment of the world. That's that wonderful. Yeah. And may I say, as a disclaimer, there's a lot of the disenchantment of the world that I'm a big fan of. I am a beneficiary, as are many of us, of the sort of empirical, rational, post-enlightenment thought that has brought the technology, for instance, upon which you and I are speaking right now. <laughs> you know, um, that's pretty amazing. However, I do think it is possible to keep one foot with the fairies and one foot in the real world. And in fact, I think in order to be a productive and happy and generative artist, uh, you, you kind of have to balance between the empirical and the phantasmal. I want to end on a practical note. Besides buying Big Magic, what's the one thing that our listeners could do to move forward into the re-enchantment of their life or opening to the creative? Follow their curiosity. You know, I, I think that word has a lot of power, and I think it's a word that's been lost in culture that fetishizes passion and always tells people to follow their passion when passion, of course, can be a very hard thing to find, and it can be something that burns hot and then burns out. It can be something that takes away from you more than it even gives sometimes. And passion is an intense thing to ask people to feel in their everyday lives on a random Tuesday when it's raining. But curiosity, I believe truly, is always with us. Um, unless you are really in the jaws of a terrible medical 
like life threat depression, most days of your life, it should be possible to access some sense of curiosity. And curiosity is just a force that walks in front of you and drops little tiny clues on the great scavenger hunt of your life. And you can commit yourself to looking at those clues and following them. I think you'll find that you have a bigger, more expanded, more exciting, and ultimately possibly more passionate life. Perfect. Thank you very much. My guest today was Elizabeth Gilbert. A review of her newest book, Big Magic, appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, and an interview with Liz will appear in the November-December issue as well. You can learn more about her work at elizabethgilbert.com. Thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. My pleasure. I loved every minute of it. Support for this podcast comes from Gulf Breeze Recovery. Their non-12-step program is changing the future of addiction recovery with their Waterfront Holistic Drug Treatment Facility. You're not broken. Visit them at gulfbreezerecovery.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a product of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. And download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.